0: And thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast Episode 158 Leningrad Under Siege When we last left the detailed telling of the civilian populace of Leningrad Zhukov had just saved the city with a series of counterattacks. Stalin, the non-military man was hoping for much more out of it than Zhukov. Still, the Germans were beaten back unable to take Volkov just below Lake Ladoga, unable to get past Tepkin, nor link up with the reluctant Finns on the southeastern corner of the lake. By then, the calendar showed October, and the weather was changing. Also by then, the Germans controlled two narrow land corridors, one just west of Leningrad, as the Soviets still held Iranian bomb to the corridors left, along the coast. The other was just below Leningrad, which touched the large lake. Throughout October, Stalin pitted his will against Hitler's, as both men directed their generals to take, or retake as it were, the area to the east of the city, but just west of Ladoga. If the Germans held the area, the rail line to Moscow was cut off. If the Soviets reclaimed it, perhaps vital supplies could get through, but the Soviet Siniavino Offensive of October, though it stymied the Germans, was not all the Stavka had hoped it would be. Now came the real struggle. Yes, the Germans were outnumbered. Yes, the land they were attempting to traverse and conquer was its own nightmare. But for Der Führer, this was where National Socialist Spirit would show its wonders, its strength, the fact that it was superior to Stalin's communism. As Barbarossa went on, Hitler would get more involved, moving his headquarters to the specially built Wolf's Lair outside Rastenburg of East Prussia. Whereas Stalin knew he could not leave the capital, as everyone would lose heart, and that seemed the only thing keeping these soldiers going. Yes, many, if not most in Russia, hated their government. But now that Germany had invaded, the Russian people hated them even more. As the Southern form, the Communist Party's newly created information apparatus, kept reporting victories, though only on a small scale. People couldn't help but comment to each other, well, we're winning, but the Germans are still advancing. These poor souls might not have been masters of strategy or tactics, but they knew that was not good. Ironically, better information came from the Sovind form in unintended ways. When a statement was made that said, Tomorrow we are going to bomb the Germans at such and such city, it was clear to the people that the Germans had made it that far, and the names of the cities got closer and closer to Leningrad, then passed it to the south. Throughout September and October, more rules were passed by Soviet officials that forbade gossip or talking over open lines, even within Leningrad. But it did no good. People talked, and more and more of them were arrested every day, or simply disappeared. And yet the people could hardly be blamed. They were scared and wanted to know what was going on. But Stalin had determined they did not need to know. As the Germans came ever closer to the southern approaches to the city, Leningrad went through its own blackout. Tram conductors no longer called out the names of a stop, street signs were painted over, and the names of buildings were covered with boards. Asking for directions was taking one's life into their own hands. All this led to a surreal summer and fall for the people of Leningrad. Was there a war on? How could one tell? Everyone acted normal, as to not attract the attention of supposed spies, and everyone thought everyone else was a spy. This wasn't like the movies at all, they whispered to each other. Some of the more courageous citizens of Leningrad started asking, why did we give up the old borders? But Stalin would have more to say about that in 1945. Though it must be said that one reason the city was so quiet was that some 50,000 women and teenagers, the first group couldn't help but talk and the second wanted to see some action, were sent 100 kilometers southwest of the city to construct new defensive lines. As for those sent to the southwest, many were female students who were ordered but only too eager to put down their books and pick up shovels and stretchers. The shovels were for digging a a one-and-a-half-meter-deep ditch with a one-meter-high breastwork. The stretchers were for carrying the dirt. The crews worked from 5 a.m. to 9 p.m., were told not to wear white, to look out for German planes that may swoop down and strafe them, and no smoking. Within days, even the young were exhausted, but at least they were doing something, something that might help keep the Panzers out. Yet their enthusiasm evaporated just as quickly as their strength. Two questions that quickly popped into the minds of the people still in or near Leningrad was, would there be enough food to get them through the winter? And would they be evacuated? But there wasn't enough time for that now, not that any answers were forthcoming. While lab students dug trenches, alongside kids in their early teens, and some had been grabbed so quickly that they were working in their bathing suits or shorts. This had been early on in the war. Art students were sent to help pack the city's museums. The Hermitage's valuables. Paintings, sculptures, manuscripts, collections of Scythian gold, a series of Babylonian bulls, and Fabergé's snowdrops in jade or crystal. By the end of the week, the first trainload of art was ready to move out to the Urals. Some 500,000 items in 1,000 crates. The museum staff, well, most of them, went out with the artwork. Trains like this left almost every week, while they could. Some of the more well-known items that left, and one can just imagine Goering wanting to get his hands on them for his growing collection at his estate, Karenhall, was a Gutenberg Bible, Pushkin's letters, Mary, Queen of Scots' prayer book, and the second-oldest surviving Greek text of the New Testament. But the thought of food never went far from the people's thoughts. The party kept telling the people that Leningrad's air defenses were such that they would probably never see a German airplane flying overhead. But if that were true, why were there so many people being forced to leave? Was there enough food? Or would there be once so many of the population has gone? Either way, rationing started on July 18th. And at first, the government was generous. There were some 800 grams of bread allotted each day for manual workers, 600 grams for those whose hands did not get dirty or blistered, and 400 grams for dependents. There would also be monthly handouts of meat, butter, and sugar. Comparing this to what had been expected by the authorities, this wasn't so bad. A person could live off this. What's more, there were shops with even more food, better food, that could be purchased, though the prices they were charging were quite high. Though it's not surprising that the people's thoughts were of food, there was simply no other information with which to occupy their thoughts. The Sovniform was beyond derelict in its duty of reporting as city after city fell, or when the Soviet 34th Army, in trying to stop the Germans from getting past Leningrad to the south, lost half its number. 74 out of 83 tanks, 628 out of 748 guns, 670 trucks, and almost 15,000 horses nor of the successful evacuation of Soviet troops from Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, some 200 miles due west of Leningrad, as this was but another defeat. The Soviets there got away on August 26th, but that was only after much fighting. The man responsible for the Russian fleet was Admiral Vladimir Tributs, C&C of the Red Banner Baltic Fleet. He had no trouble seeing how vulnerable the newly created naval base at Labau, west of Tallinn on the Latvian coast, was, would be if war came to the east. So, caring more about his fleet than himself, he asked for permission to move his larger ships east to Estonia, which was approved, after Russia had been at war with Germany for two days. And tributes had been correct. The formal port facility quickly fell into German hands. But there was no time to celebrate about being right. Now the Germans were on their way to Tallinn, and Tributes only had some 14,000 sailors, about 1,000 police, and 4,000 or so remaining soldiers of the 5th Motorized Rifle Regiment, which had fled from Riga. There was also no way these numbers could either stop or slow down the attackers. So, the Admiral conscripted some 25,000 Estonian civilians to dig trenches. Yet, their shovels did not move that fast, nor move that much earth, as the Latvians did not want to be rescued from the Germans. They were, in fact, hoping to be rescued from the Communists. The NKVD took what measures it deemed prudent to keep the people in line and digging, but it did no good besides getting suspects killed. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. Admiral Tributz could only conceive of two possible ways to escape, and both suggestions were sent to Stalin. He could either bring all his men together and attempt to break out to fight their way east. Yet the idea of breaking through a German line and then fighting through more Germans, only to get to another German line that was itself forming in front of the Soviet line further east, seemed like painful, slow suicide. The other idea was to load up all his men and sail across the Gulf of Finland. There they could land and try to fight their way through to Leningrad against the Finns. Neither idea was a great one, but in the end it didn't matter. Stalin said no to both. The Soviet redoubt was to be held. The Germans came at the trapped Russians on August nineteenth, their guns dropping shells any place defenders might be hiding. The Admiral's 7,000-ton cruiser, Kirov, answered the German artillery with shells of its own. For a week, the Russians continued to beat off the night attacks. Then, the Germans wised up and started sending in smaller, harder-to-detect groups who took control of sections of the town. First, the airfields were taken. The Russians responded to this by having their planes take off and head east. They weren't making that much of a difference to the defense anyways. Then, section by section, the suburbs began to be swallowed up. This would happen at night. As the sun went down, a section would still be in Russian hands, but by sunup, it would be swarming with Germans. Estonian assistance was strongly suspected. By the end of the week, Stalin could see how this was going to end, so he gave permission for the men to evacuate, perhaps hoping, like Dunkirk, his people would respond when it was reported that this group had not fallen into German hands, but would live on to fight another day. But the wider Russian population was not told, as it was decided by then that anything other than a complete victory was to be hushed. The defenders began to pull back to the harbor, setting fires to valuable items along the way. Their destination, once aboard, was the island of Kronstadt, at the entrance to the Gulf of Finland. Of course, the first ones to embark were sailors' civilian entourage, like officers' wives, party officials, and the president of the puppet Estonian Republic. Within a matter of days doing themselves proud. By August 28th, some 23,000 people and 66,000 tons of munitions, they had to think of the future, were collected aboard some 228 vessels. The Germans had control of the skies, but were focused on such a vast area, they could not, or chose not to, focus here, to sink as many ships as they could. Yet, it must be said, this was not Dunkirk. It would not alter Soviet Russia's ability or Stalin's determination to fight on. But by the morning of August 28th, with the ships ready to go, they were suddenly caught in a Force 7 gale. It was not until noon that the seas calmed. Then the ships headed out in four separate groups. But compared to the British ships, which had only to make it through some 50 miles of disputed seas, The Russians would have to traverse some 220 miles, all while under the gun, so to speak, from shore batteries, German subs, and Finnish torpedo boats. But the biggest headache for the Soviet naval crews were the mines. To confront these, Admiral Tributes only had some 38 minesweepers, and most of them were converted trawlers. Then the real hell began. The Luftwaffe might not have focused on the ships while they were in harbor, but did so now. Just as soon as the convoys headed out, they received the attention of wave after wave of Junker's 88 dive bombers. The ships tried to keep their composure, but found it difficult to say the least. At six o'clock that evening, the lead convoy ran into their first minefield, near point Juminda, 40 miles east of Tallinn. Five minutes later, the first ship, Ella, an Estonian merchantman, disappeared beneath the waves. Ships from the fourth convoy slowed down to search for survivors when a tug then hit a mine. It was gone in 15 minutes. Then an icebreaker was bombed and disappeared. The vessels started slowing down, now obsessed with the hidden ship killers. When just minutes after the tug vanished, the Veronia suffered a direct hit from a bomber, its engines now useless, a nearby vessel, the Saturn, took it under tow. Now, the remaining ships zigzagged as they should have done before, hoping to be missed by the mines, falling bombs, and approaching shells. ever eastward, the ships went. As for the Soviet warships, they understandably thought only of survival, so it surged forward and were of little help. But the loss of life and ships was not over for the night. Before much progress had been made, a submarine, the crop acting as a minesweeper, hit a mine. What little of it there was above the water now disappeared forever. Any formation now amongst the ships was simply a theory as panic took over. Then the Saturn, still assisting the Veronia, had a hole torn in its side and disappeared. It was 8.30 p.m. Still, the German-laid mines were doing their work. One more submarine and destroyer were lost, the latter to a German torpedo. And now that darkness had come, there was no chance of spotting the deadly devices. That night, nine more ships were lost. Some had been towing, some being towed, but all were lost, with the majority of their crews and passengers. Around midnight, the ships stopped, waiting for daylight and the ability to see the mines. The next day, six more ships were lost. Two were overtaken by Finnish vessels. Those crews were now prisoners of war. In the afternoon, three troop transport ships were damaged, but managed to run aground before sinking. The admiral, knowing how Stalin thought, sent small boats to collect the soldiers. The remains of the 5th Motorized Rifle Regiment were picked up to fight another day. It took four more days for the convoys to reach their destination, but by then they had lost a total of 65 ships and some 14,000 sailors, soldiers, crew, and civilians. For comparison, these losses of men and vessels were twice as much as when the Japanese fleet attacked the Tsarist Navy in Tsushima in 1905. Of course, there would be investigations into this retreat later. Some were arrested, others shot, but the men in whatever position were simply doing what Stalin had done, waited until escape was absolutely necessary, and then did it poorly, without adequate resources. But no one said that out loud, of course. When news of the German invasion shot across the country, many Leningraders volunteered for the army. They were angry at Nazi Germany. Didn't they have a treaty? But there was more to it than patriotism. Some were hoping to steer clear of being conscripted for medical training by the Military Medical Academy. Who wanted to deal with what was left of a man after being torn apart by a shell? Fighting took one form of courage, or hatred. This was beyond thinking about. Within hours, the party officials of Leningrad were turning away some of those in line like the one man who had part of his stomach removed during a recent surgery, or the 90-year-old retiree whose father had been taken away by the party and shot, but still believed in communism. Then there were those who, when it was found out, could speak German, were pulled aside for interpreting. Many of them tried to hide their ability as they wanted to get out there so they could get in their shots at the coming Germans. Yet, many of them died during the first weeks and months of the war anyways, as the Germans overran all defensive positions. By now, in this Barbarossa series, the phrase, inadequately trained, has been used ad nauseam, And it was never worse than at the beginning of the war. By the first week of July, Leningrad alone had some 110,000 volunteers. After the NKVD came along and removed those, it did not trust. The first volunteer division was sent to makeshift barracks. Really, it was an emptied-out school or hospital or part of a factory floor. But such was the lack of organization that there were no beds or even mattresses for the recruits to sleep on. Some were still hungover from their celebratory goodbyes from their friends as they were off to kill the Germans. Day one consisted of political lectures. Then rifles were passed out. What there were of them. No division, not for a long time, would ever have each man holding a rifle. As for the arms instructors, there was one teacher for each five to six hundred men. Not that it mattered. After the third day, any formed divisions lined up as best they could, and marched right out of the city, to the front. This was the way of things in late June and throughout July. As the men were marching through the city, the remaining citizens cheered them on. Only once the soldiers were out of town would the units halt, as some of them were ordered to go back into town to pick up their basic supplies and equipment. But as far as the people knew, the men, their men, were on the way. Only en route would the soldiers' uniforms and fighting equipment, hopefully, catch up with them. Throughout late June, July, and most of August, those Leningraders who did not join or were taken away all had the same question uppermost in their mind. Should I leave? But that only begged other questions, like, Where do I go? And how do I start my life? all over again. And those thinking these thoughts had a deadline, August 29th, because that's when the last train headed out of the city. By then, some 636,000 people had gone. For comparison, some 660,000 civilians left London just two years ago. For the remaining 3.1 million people, the Leningraders, and those of the surrounding villages, of which some 400,000 were children, but still within the German Ring of Steel, who chose to stay behind, or couldn't get out in time. They were simply putting their lives in the hands of Stalin, the Red Army, and Soviet Russia.